I'm almost speechless. Almost. It wouldn't be a good thing if I was completely speechless right now. But I am almost speechless, and I'm so thankful uh, for the Lord's favor to have allowed us to see this day uh, with all of the challenges and as has already been shared, the discomfort along the way that we knew would be a part of this journey, but it's been great. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world to have been along for the ride and to be able to stand here today and say, look at what the Lord has done. Isn't it awesome? Listen, you ought to give the Lord a hand. Amen. He, he has shined his face upon us, and we are so thankful. Because truth be told, none of us were quite sure when all of this started about any of this. <laughs> Amen. We just trusted in the Lord. And so we are so thankful that we've seen this day. I want to say um, to all who gave all of their time, efforts, and hard work in putting today. So today, for those of you that I noticed that we didn't have many first-time visitors, but we do have some. Uh, so for those of you that are visiting for the first time, this is not the normal service today. <laughs> it's a little bit different. Uh, but we're so thankful for all who put in so much hard work, dedication, and commitment to the program today. Everything was absolutely wonderful. Thank you for everyone. Cynthia, thank you for, thank you for sharing our history, uh, the parts of it that you could, uh, given the time, because there's a lot more to the story. Uh, we thank you for that. Thank you for everyone who did anything today. Uh, we're so thankful. This was beautiful, and we thank God for that. We want to also um, say th thank God for the privilege of being back in church today. Uh, we had, we, I've actually had two weeks off, Nate. Isn't that something? Uh, one week was planned, and last week was not planned. Uh, but we are so thankful that uh, we had the opportunity, most of you know, on last week to serve the community in providing the space for people to keep warm during the snowpocalypse of 2021. <laughs> and so uh, we, uh, we were notified, we were notified around 2.30 on that Tuesday by the fire department that they were in need of uh, a warming center in this part of town. And let me say this, by 5 o'clock, we had mobilized volunteers and supplies and the building was prepared and by five o'clock we welcomed our first guests in this place and so we were privileged so I want to say thank you to all man many people played a part in pulling all that together uh, and so thank you by the end of all of it we had served over 50 people in our community with food with warm place to stay with water uh, even a pop-up COVID-19 shot clinic. Uh, NetHealth K-12 
came out and did shots. And so and so you saw some of that on the video. Uh, I was blessed to get my first shot. You saw my wife giving it to me. Now, I won't say this. I didn't jump the line. <laughs> it was uh, expressed to us that they had vaccines that were about to expire. And that anybody we could get uh, at the last minute was welcome. And so I got on in there because I've been wanting it and I got it. So, amen. So, but we thank God for everyone who had played a part in everything that happened. So because of that, we took last week off. The weather was great uh, by Sunday. But we thought we needed to take off because we had a lot of cleaning up to do and uh, recuperating from all of the hard work and all that. So we did. But we're back today. So welcome back to church. And for those of you that are joining us online, welcome back. I know some probably tuned in last week and said, what? What, what happened? Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was a blessing. We were able to watch South Campus and join them in worship. And Ross, as always, did a wonderful job. And so we thank God for that. Um, so we're back, and we're ready to go and raring to go, and so blessed to see all of you with us today as we celebrate two years. Um, we're thankful for that. So many people here that started the journey with us, and then many that joined in along the way, and we're so glad. Uh, so today, we are picking up with our study in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, or the church's around the city of Ephesus, however you want to look at it, it's a letter to that church. And so we want to pick up today with that letter, chapter 3 of that letter. Uh, we're going to look at verses 14 through 21. Before we do that, I'm going to, uh, if you don't mind, and even if you do mind, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to say a word of prayer. Amen. Jeff, is that all right? All right. <laughs> I got to get the thumbs up for my brother from another mother over there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Lord, we thank you. You have been so faithful to us, individually and collectively. You have been so faithful, and we thank you. Lord, we love you, we honor you, we reverence you, and you are the sole purpose for which we gather in this place. We come here, Lord, for no other reason but to glorify and magnify you and to learn of your word so that when we learn of your word, we can then hide that word in our hearts that we might then leave here and go out into a world and impact it for your glory. Thank you. Now, Father, my humble prayer as always is that it would be all of you and none of me that you would increase as I decrease, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are my strength and you are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So because the service today is a little bit different, all of you are going to be blessed and benefit from that because time is short. <laughs> and I know it, it, that's a good thing for, for you guys. Not for me, because I'm going to have to rush, but it's okay. For you, it's good, because I promise you, I'm going to keep my eye, and we're going to be out of here on time. <laughs> Y'all hold me to that. Let me say this. If you help me out with a few amens along the way. Amen. There we go. That's good practice right there. Good practice. Good practice. We'll, I, we'll get through it. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, all the way through the end of the chapter, here's what God's word says. 
for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And one of my all-time favorite verses in all the scripture is next. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Word of God for the people of God. From this passage, I want to apply a tag or a title, and here it is. From revelation to realization. From revelation to realization. So here's what I want to do. Uh, since I've had a couple of weeks off and none of you were here last week, uh, I want to do a brief little recap of kind of how we got to where we are in this letter that Paul writes. Uh, I shared with you when we first started our journey through Ephesians that this epistle is both a literary gem and a treasure of spiritual nuggets. The argument has been made by some that it is the apostle's greatest epistle that he ever wrote. Hence, because of that, it has been ascribed many soaring titles like the Alps of the New Testament, the heavenly epistle, the crown and climax of Pauline theology. In fact, Samuel Coleridge, I shared with you earlier, said that Ephesians is the divinest composition of man. Another writer refers to it as the Grand Canyon of Scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it the sublimest and the most majestic expression of the gospel. And yet another says that it is the quintessence of Paulinism. You remember that the structure of Ephesians can be considered in two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 3, concern theological and doctrinal issues. In other words, reinforcing the believer's position as a Christian. While the second half, chapters 4 through 6, deal with the ethical and practical outworkings of the Christian faith. Specific practices and the way Christians should behave. Or, it's been said this way, orthodoxy versus orthopraxy, what we know versus what we do. You'll also recall as we recap what's happened thus far that in the beginning Paul talks about how God was the author and director of everything in our lives, including how he jump-started our faith and opened our eyes to the gospel and how he empowers us to put our trust completely in him. It's by his power. Then in chapter 2, Paul talks about how 
God saved us. You remember that, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the uh, most prolific and profound explanation of how we are saved in all of Scripture. It is by grace, through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You remember that. Paul shares that with us in chapter 2. How God saved us. And then at the end of chapter 2, how God made us his poetry in motion. His poetry in motion. Uh, as he made us that way, his poetry in motion, so that we could accomplish the good works uh, for his glory that he, des he predestined us to do. Then in chapter 3, uh, Ross shared with you a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that Paul addresses the Jewish and Gentile believers who were once enemies of God and how there was this veil or this dividing wall that separated all of us actually from God and how Christ destroyed the wall. He ripped the veil in two from top to bottom. And when he did that, when he did what he did on the cross, he did that. And when he did that, he also destroyed the division between the two groups of people who didn't get along. And he knit them together into one family. Now, that is certainly something that we need to, to understand and walk in today. The reality is, is that Christ has already destroyed the wall of separation, the wall of division. Our issue today is that we need to receive it and walk in it. Because Paul deals with the issue in his day. We still deal with the issue today. The reality is, though, that Jesus on the cross, accomplished all of it he accomplished it already and so Paul takes us through that in chapter 3 and and in each time in the first half of Ephesians after Paul teaches these deep theological truths he prays every time he he finishes with some 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 deep theology he decides to pause and pray. He does it the first time, you'll remember, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And the second time here in our passage today, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So at the outset, before we get into the content of this second of two prayers, I like to compare the two, if you allow me to. I like to compare the first prayer Paul prays in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 with the second prayer that Paul prays that we're going to talk about today in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. It's been said that the prayer in chapter 1 is a prayer for revelation. That ye, that ye may know, that ye may know. A petition for spiritual apprehension of the riches of his grace. While this prayer in chapter 3 is not a prayer for revelation, but a prayer for realization. Not that ye may know, but that ye might be. That ye might be a prayer, in other words, for spiritual appropriation of the riches of his grace. So Paul reminds us in the first part of his letter uh, who we are and what we have and how God has blessed us with his riches. Now is time. Talk about what we do with it. 
So that's what this prayer is about, realization. And so there are some contrasts and some compliments in these two prayers that I'd like to share with you. The first prayer in chapter 1, as I said before, is about revelation. This second prayer is about realization. First prayer is about enlightenment. This second prayer is about enablement. First prayer is references light. This prayer is about life. First prayer is that uh, you would know what you are. This prayer is that you would be what you are. First prayer is that you would know the power of God. This prayer is that you would experience the fullness of God. First prayer is to understand the power working for us. This prayer is to understand the power working in us. First prayer is about you in Christ. This prayer is about Christ in you. Because I don't know if you realize it or not, but Christ in you is the hope of glory. Now that we see the difference between the two and the contrast, the compliments, let's take a closer look at the contents of this closing prayer of the first half of this epistle. Uh, it starts in verses 14 and 15. And from these two verses, I'd like to talk about posture. Posture. That's what Paul brings out in, in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. It really is a picture of one's posture in prayer. But let me suggest and submit to you that this is not in any way a mandate for physical posture. It's not a mandate for that but rather an example of the proper spiritual posture or attitude when approaching the sovereign, loving God. Kneeling, kneeling in that day represented and still does reverence, submission, humility, and adoration before God. The Greek word translated before means toward or face to face with. Along with the word father, it implies the intimacy of a child coming before his loving father who will warmly welcome him. This is the picture coming before a loving father with humility, submission and reverence. God, let me say this to you. God is not concerned about the posture of your body. I mean, you can pray standing up, sitting down, walking. It don't make no difference. Driving, just do it with your eyes open. <laughs> I do it all the time. It makes no difference about your physical posture. God is not concerned about that. He's more concerned about the posture of your heart. What, what, what position is your heart in when you pray? Uh, is your heart in a place of humility, of reverence uh, to a God who we recognize and realize loves us? Whether we kneel physically or not, we should always be kneeling before him in our hearts as we acknowledge his glory, his greatness, and his wonder. And then in verse 15, uh, as we continue to look at this idea of posture, verse 15 speaks further of his sovereignty, and it confirms his authority. Look at what verse 15 says. It says this, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. You know, that talk, you know what that speaks to? It speaks to the fact that in that day, 
fathers had the authority to name and still even today sometimes, if you, I mean, sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes it don't work out that way. But in Paul's day, the father had the authority to name the children because they belonged to him. And so this signifies what Paul writes in verse 15, says this, that God is the creator of all mankind. He named us. Because he had that right, that privilege, that honor, he deserves all of our respect. He has ultimate authority. So our posture should be one uh, where the heart is bowed in respect and honor to an all-wise and all-loving God. And then Paul moves on beyond the posture next to God's provision. God's provision. It's in verse 16. Look at what verse 16 says again. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. From posture now to God's provision. So Paul says, according to his riches, to the riches of his glory. And, and, And here's what's going on. God has not promised of something which he is unable to perform. He estimated his own resources before he promised to bequeath such wealth to his children. Uh, God's budget has always been balanced. Nothing is unstable in the plan of redemption. God is not experimenting with men's souls. He's not doing that, nor has he left anything to chance. Everything has been worked out in God's economy. In God's kingdom, everything is already thought out and planned out, and there is nothing that God does by chance. He counted the whole cost of building this wondrous habitation of God long before he laid a single living stone upon the foundation. We ought to have that same practice, but oftentimes we don't. He counted the cost. And he knew he had within him what it took to bring all of this to pass. And he knew that he was fully able to carry it out to completion. The riches of his grace are provided in something. Where do we find it? Where do we find the riches of his grace? It's found in Christ crucified, in Christ risen, in Christ ascended, and in Christ exalted. The riches of his glory are in Christ The glorified Lord, all that he is and has is ours. He is our fullness. And then Paul says this. He says, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. That that is a prayer that all of us could benefit from. I don't know about you, but sometimes my strength gets weak. And it's not always my physical strength. 
Paul says this, it's important that the believer's strength be built up, that the strength uh, be granted, that we have strength with power. Here's what's going on. God rejoices whenever a child of his comes to the end of himself and acknowledges his own utter impotency. Have you ever been really honest with yourself and recognized that you just can't do it? <laughs> I mean, somebody else should have said amen. More than two or three. I told y'all, if you help me, we'll get I got eight minutes. Y'all better help me out. <laughs> Have you ever just really been honest with yourself and sat down and said, I can't do this? I don't know where the, where the turn. You know what? And then at that time, you called out to God. You know that God rejoices when we do that, it, 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 it moves him when we acknowledge that we need him. That without him, we are impotent. We have no strength. It moves him when we do that. And so then he can begin to work. We humble ourselves and say, Lord, help me. Is anybody here ever say, Lord, help me? Maybe you said it a different way. Maybe you said, Jesus. <laughs> Maybe you said, I need thee. Maybe, you, I don't know how you said it, but I, everybody in here probably along the way has said that. And God can begin. It gives him the opportunity to begin to work in our lives when we throw up our hands. and Say, I've come to the end of myself. I need you. And so Paul says that we need to be strengthened with power. But how do we get there? What, what's, the, what's the mode of transportation that takes us there? Well, it's in the text. Paul says it's through his spirit. Isn't it? It's through his spirit. Through his spirit. Uh, it's the Pentecost promise. It's the promise made at Pentecost. You know Acts 1-8, the Pentecost promise. But you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's the Pentecost. That's the only way we can get power is when the Holy Spirit comes up on us. And so Paul says, this is how we get there through the spirit that rests inside and resides inside of us. It takes us. He, not it, he takes us to this place of power and strength. The Holy Spirit who worked for us to implant life now works in us to impart power. He lives within us to strengthen and energize with divine might. And by a definite and continuous process, the life bestowed by the Spirit through rebirth is, the, is to be realized in fullness through renewal. It's the Spirit. And so he prays that we might have this power, that we might strengthen. Then he gives us the understanding of how we get there, through the Spirit. But where does it happen? Is he talking about uh, my guns? Y'all don't have guns. I got guns. Y'all got guns? Anybody that got? <laughs> he talking about my guns, right? You're not talking about my physical. Where does this happen? Well, again, it's in the text. The text says it happens in your inner being. 
not on the outside. It happens on the inside. The location of the strengthening is the inner being. God always begins at the innermost part of our being and works outward. That's where he starts on the inside. He works outward. Uh, Prior to salvation, our human spirit is spiritually dead, cut off from God. When the new birth occurs, the Holy Spirit is somehow fused with our human spirit, making us alive to God, vitally connected to him through the spirit and infused with life of an eternal quality and magnitude is how it works. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 10 verses, Romans chapter 8 rather, verses 10 and 11. He says this, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is how it happens. This is the location. In order uh, 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 I want to share this with you, share this quote. Here's what uh, Chuck Swindoll says about it. He says this, he says, in order to cease our striving, we must, I like, these, I like this phrase, transfer our trust. <laughs> you, need to, you need a trust transfer. <laughs> you need to transfer your trust away from our own abilities our own accomplishments, our own strength, and place it on his provision. Trust transfer. Y'all leave here with that thought today. Transfer that trust. So then Paul moves on from, the, from God's provision to Christ's presence. It's in verse 17, Christ's presence. Here's what verse 17 says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. We'll stop there. It's talking about Christ's presence. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The word dwell connotes the fixed, permanent abode of the one who owns. Dwells. It's the Greek word katokeo. Katoikeo, katoikeo. It means live, dwell, reside, settle down. It refers to permanent habitation as opposed to sojourning or pitching a tent or an occasional visit. I don't want Jesus in the spirit just to pass through me. I need him to dwell with me. Take up residence with me. Paul is not referring to to Christ's initial entrance into the Christian's life. This is not talking about salvation because the recipients of his letter were already saved. He, he already, Christ already has been given a place in the life of the Christian, yet in some lives he seems to be far more like a house guest than the sole and rightful owner. You ought to stop and ask yourself that question. Is he a house guest? Or is, he, or is he an owner? Uh, Robert Munger writes a book. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. And in his book, he compares the heart to a home. He says when Christ comes into the heart, he is invited into the living room as an honored guest and asked to be seated and feel right at home. But the problem starts when Christ starts poking into closets and other rooms in the house. It is obvious that the host isn't prepared for him then. Those rooms are off limits to the influence of Christianity. We try to keep that separate. Stay over here. 
I'll be roaming around the house. That's not the idea. The idea of dwell, the idea of, of, of this Greek word is that Christ desires to be the presiding presence, permeating and possessing all of us is the idea. So we'll talk about Christ's presence. Then we move on from there to talk about Christ's preciousness. It's in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 says this. May have strength to comprehend all with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. You'll recall that in John's letter to this church recorded in Revelation chapter 2, the one issue against them was that they had, y'all know it, left their first love. In other words, their intense love for Christ had waned along the way. Uh, many of us are guilty of that very same sin. Along the way, our, our, our intense love for Christ has maybe waned. So Paul prays that they would be reminded of how precious Christ is. The only reason that we can comprehend this is because we have been strengthened, Paul has already told us this, by the spirit in our inner being. And Christ is dwelling in our hearts. That's the only way we can comprehend what Paul wants us to comprehend right now about the preciousness of Christ. So, Paul prays that this would happen. That being the case, Paul shares some measurements of our glorious salvation that we may better comprehend and not lose sight of the preciousness of Christ. So he does this. He says that we may comprehend with all the saints the breadth. What is that? Talking about the width, the wideness, right? Uh, it is talking about the redeemed and the expanse of who the redeemed are, how it is broader than those in his day thought it was. Uh, Jew and Gentile made into one new man, one body of Christ. Not separated, not separate, any of that, but, but, but the breadth, the width, the expanse includes anyone who, who desires to come. It's, it, it's in Ephesians, in this letter, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, here's what Paul says about the breadth and how he explains it. Therefore, he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, somebody say, but now. In Christ, you who once were, off, were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Boy, I wish I'd have been here to preach that. Ross tried to let me come on and do it, but I said, no, nah, we've already scheduled you. He said, this is your passage. I said, no, nah, you're already on the schedule. Go ahead. Boy, I sure wish I could have, but that's okay. It's all right. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access into one spirit uh, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together <clears throat> grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, might I say in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that's the breadth, right? The, the, the whiteness that, that, that encompasses uh, the entirety of the body. Then he says, not just the breadth, but also the length. What is he talking about when he talks about the length? He's talking about the length. God's eternal purpose from eternity to eternity. And he deals with it in this letter in chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The length. How long is this thing? And then he talks about the depth. How deep is this issue? How deep is this subject? And here he talks about depravity from which the sinner was delivered and death in which the sinner was found. That's how deep it is. This thing is deep, y'all. And so he deals with it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This thing is deep. <laughs> That's where we were, stuck in that, in that deep stuff. Then he moves on to the height. What is he talking about when he talks about the height? He's talking about the position to which the saint was raised. You do know we've been raised to a height, right? And so he deals with it, uh, this height in Christ in heavenly is far above all. He talks about it in early in this letter in chapter 2 and in chapter 1. He says this, but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's the height. Y'all to get excited about that. And so Paul deals with this. And then in verse 19, uh, the first part of verse 19, he moves on to talk about the love. <clears throat> he says this, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That really seems like an oxymoronic statement, doesn't it? How do you know something that's beyond knowing? <laughs> okay. It's beyond knowledge. He says the only way is that Christ dwells. He's already said it. He's just saying it a different way now. The only way to get there is that Christ has to dwell in your heart and have access to all the rooms in your house. 
And if you can do that, then you'll be able to know the unknowable. Now, it's not that God is going to allow you to know everything about him, but the things that he deems that we need to know about his love, he'll allow us and open our hearts and our minds up to receive it. We'll only be able to comprehend it when we give Christ authority to dwell within us. And then from there, he says this, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Anybody want to be that? Anybody tired of being empty? Anybody tired of trying to fill the hole with something that, the, that won't fill the hole? <laughs> Amen. The hole in the soul can only be filled by Jesus. And when Jesus is in that empty space, then there is this fullness. That we can't explain. Sometimes I'm asked about my faith and I can't find words, Cynthia. Sometimes it, it goes beyond my ability to explain. You know what I just say? It's fullness. It's fullness. And so then, as we move on, <clears throat> Paul closes this first the second prayer, rather, of the first half of this letter with a doxology. He closes this with a doxology. Uh, here's what it says in verse 20. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Unto him who's able to do it by the power that work that is at work in us. This is Paul's closing. He says, look, look, our God is able to far exceed our wildest imagination. Whatever you think you can dream of, do that times a million. God can do it. And you know how he accomplishes it? Through the power that is at work that we've already talked about. That's within you. That's what Paul decides to close this section of his letter with, talking about God who is able to do it. And then what I love is that he closes out completely in verse 21 with praise. Praise is always appropriate. Somebody say amen. It, 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 praise is never out of place. So he says this, to him... Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Praise is always appropriate. It reminds me of Psalm 34, 1 through 8. And here's what it says. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I saw the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angels of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them all taste and see. I got I to rap back when I say that. It takes me back to my Baptist days almost, mate. <laughs> I know I can't go all the way back. Jeff, give me a thumbs up, please. All right. 
but, I, but it just, just give me a little bit of taking me back. Oh, taste and see. That the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And speaking of going back, I love what William Murphy says about praise. He says this, he says, praise is what I do. Praise is what I do when I, when I want to be close to you. I lift my hands in praise. Murphy says, praise is who I am. I'll praise him while I can. I'll bless him at all times. He says this, he says, I vow to praise you. I vow to praise you. That's what he says. I, I, I vow to praise you through the good and the bad. I'll praise you whether happy or sad. I'll praise you in all that I go through. Because praise is what I do. Praise is always appropriate. Let me close with a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Here's what he says about praise. He says this, he says, prayer is not so heavenly an exercise as praise. Prayer is for time, but praise is for eternity. When you pray, you're praying for right now. What's going on in this life? But when you praise, it goes to your eternal account. It's for eternity. So then we ought to close everything we do. Just like I'm closing this message right now. Even though I'm a few minutes over, y'all going to be all right with that, right? Y'all didn't say amen like you should have been saying. It's y'all's fault. I would have been through 15 minutes ago. <laughs> Somebody would have stood up. Where Brother Sam? Brother Sam should have stood up and hollered. I'd have been through. It's always appropriate to start or close or in the middle with praise. Isn't it? So praise goes to our eternal account and it's important. So Paul closes this part of his letter with praise unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask to think according to the power that worketh in us. To him, to him, to him be the glory. Thank you. Thank, we thank God. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise because you deserve it all. We, we, we thank you, Lord. We worship you, Lord. We pray that um, you allow us to take your word, Lord, and apply it to our daily lives for your glory. Thank you. Thank you that you've taken us from revelation to realization. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you and thank you again for being here. We have to acknowledge, I know we already did briefly, but we need to